All right, so we're continuing on in the book of Acts. I know I'm, you've never seen me up here through Acts, but I've been following along and I know um, it's been quite an interesting ride just being curious and letting the scriptures tell us what's happening and see how we can pull some amazing things from it. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 14. So the plot today, I'm reading from the the New American Standard Version. That's my translation. I'm going to be reading through it. I'm going to read through it once and then pull out some observations that I think might be interesting. And then uh, we'll open it up to have some discussion time and then see what else happens. So here's a brief summary of chapter 14. So chapter 14 records the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas to Phrygia and Lysania. And chapter, the chapter which takes place approximately 48 AD describes the last half of Paul's missionary journey, including the healing of a crippled man in Lystra. Paul and Barnabas also encounter opposition and persecution in various cities, but they continue to preach and establish new congregations. The chapter emphasizes God's kindness and power which is seen in the fruitful crops of rain he provides. This incredible chapter highlights the challenges and triumphs of early Christian missionaries as they spread the gospel to new regions. So, Acts 14. Let's just read it and see what happens. In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. And the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be performed by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, And some sided with the Jews, while others with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to treat them abusively and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lysinoia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, a man was sitting whose feet were incapacitated. He had been disabled from his mother's womb and had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke. Paul looked at him intently and saw that he had faith to be made well. And he said with a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And the man leaped up and began to walk. The crowd saw that Paul saw what Paul had done. They raised their voices, saying, in the Lysonian, Lysonian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. 
And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes, since he was the chief speaker. Moreover, the priests of Zeus, whose temple was outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the great to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. Sorry, with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard about this, they tore their robes and rushed out to the crowd, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you preaching the gospel to you to turn from these useless things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. In past generations, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even by saying these things, only with difficulty did they restrain the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, thinking that he was dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he left with Barnabas for Derby. And after that, uh, sorry, and after they had preached the gospel to this, that city and had made a good number of disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, It is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they entrusted them to the Lord in whom they believed. They passed through uh, Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Uh, when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. Attalia, sorry. From there, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. Okay, that's quite a wild ride. So, we have to remember the book of Acts is a narrative and there's descriptive parts in it, and there's also prescriptive parts in it. When you read the scripture, you have to look at it for what it's giving you. So right now, we're reading an account of what's happened. Oftentimes in churches, we tend to take everything as a hardline doctrine way of how we're supposed to do something when the text is not giving us a hardline doctrine of the way we're supposed to do something. So let's say in Deuteronomy, it's, there's an account of the Ten Commandments being given, but in the Ten Commandments being given, 
there's also a description of what we are supposed to do. Here's an example. You should not murder. Okay. Now we can say, we can make a suggestion. <laughs> well, that's just talking about what was happening there. It doesn't apply to us now. No, well, we know there's a description there. That is something descriptive of how we are supposed to behave. But also, it has Moses going up to Mount Sinai. That does not mean that we all should take a trek to Mount Sinai and walk up it. And if we don't, we're not Christians. Does everybody understand that? There's parts of the Bible that we read as this is what's happening. But what we have to do with these kind of texts is look at the deeper meaning that we can pull from it. What is the text actually trying to tell us? What applies to us now? And what was just happening? So I think something that we can pull up, it's going to be throughout the chapter, it's what the gospel did. Because all of this was kicked off by the gospel being preached. If you look at the top of verse 14, sorry, chapter 14, In Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a way. So it's the gospel that's being preached. So they spoke in such a way that a large number of people believed. Okay, so the gospel being preached, something happened. The first thing that happened was people believed it. Both Jews and Greeks. Another thing happened. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brothers. Okay. So the gospel being preached, people heard it. Jews and Gentiles, people from two different ethnicities, believed it. But also, there was a group of people that didn't like what they were hearing. So they didn't just say, well, you know, I don't like this, so I'm just going to keep it to myself. No, they actually said, I'm going to stir up the minds of other people. So it's almost like a counter gospel that happened. A gospel being preached, but then almost a counter gospel being preached that was, we can almost say anti-Christ. Something that was supposed to push back against the message and the messengers of the gospel. So what happened? So because that happened, verse three says, therefore they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be performed by their hands. Okay. So the gospel was believed. There was also a counter gospel, a pushback of that gospel. So because of that, they said, well, we're, we're going to spend some more time here, speak boldly, but there's a reliance on the Lord in our bold speaking. Not only that, God himself backed up their bold words 
by granting that signs and wonders be performed by their hands. Okay. So what can we take from this so far? Well, when the gospel is preached, when we decide to share the gospel, we know people will believe. Why? Because it's the power of salvation. We don't hold an empty gospel. We hold a gospel with power. That means it has the power to change hearts, which meaning it will change hearts. But not only that, there's going to be pushback. Not only pushback from maybe people hearing, but we know there's a cultural pushback happening. That is actually cutting the knees off of people being able to truly believe the gospel. In the 90s, most people had a pretty good understanding of what the Bible said. So the gospel being preached sounded pretty different. Hey, you know you're going to die. You know the God of the Bible is real. You need to accept Christ. You need to live right. Okay. Pretty easy. Now, I can preach that same gospel, but there's actually multiple questions that are going to come up now. Well... How do I know this God of the Bible is real? That's a question that most folks probably wouldn't even have asked in the 70s, 80s, 90s. Most times, the general populace had an idea because of our history of being a Christian nation. There is an active pushback. There is a stirring up of the minds against the gospel of Christ. Not only that, I think we're seeing an embittering. It's funny that they use the word embittering. It's like these people were putting bitterness into their hearers. So it's not just, hey, I don't think you should listen to them. It's don't listen to them. But I don't think you should even respect them. I, I think there's a problem with these kind of people. Hey, I think... We need to do something about it. So for us, this scripture is actually giving us a pretty interesting playbook of what to expect when we preach the gospel. What to expect when we go out to culture and society. Here's another thing to think through. At verse 4, it says, But the people of the city were divided, and some sided with the Jews, while others with the apostles. We're seeing that now. We're literally seeing that right now. There's some people, yes, that side with God, but there's still some people that are siding with this antichrist message, this antichrist agenda. It makes me think about when Jesus said that he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. Jesus knew that this gospel message is going to Split families, split nations, split towns because of its razor's edge to just cut bone from marrow. So on some sort of level, we have to know when we preach a gospel, we're preaching a divisive message that will bring division. will also inspire people to not only just not like us, but actually spread counter-propaganda against us. But there's hope there that people believed. There's some people that will side with us. 
I think one of the, 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 the times, I like debating. Um, my wife just thinks I just like to argue, but I disagree. But I realize when you watch like well-educated debates, they're not just debating the person across from them. Especially if it's in a crowd, it's about how do we discuss this and how do I articulate myself in a way that the hearers are going to side with me. Now, I don't know how many of you, well, maybe that's just me because I'm a nerd like that, but if you watch like timed academic debates, most times you would never hear slander to the other point. Like, your point makes no sense because you're stupid. Or your point makes no sense because you're ugly or your hair is nasty. Like, no one's going to say that because that's not going to sway the audience. I need to cut down this person's idea in a way that touches the hearts of people so they'll be on my side by the end of the debate. And I think sometimes us as Christians, we lose sight of the greater scheme of the enemy. We see here that the enemy is embittering people, creating division. He's debating the church, and I'm talking about Big C Church. He's playing the game thinking that other people are watching. But us as Christians, sometimes I don't think we do. I think we come into here and we, we do our little great things here, but we think the game turns off when we leave the doors. No, no, no. If anything, it, it just gets started out there. Like when we're out there, that our gospel presentation isn't just when we're speaking. Yes, that's when conversion happens. But you'll see, especially a lot of times in this day and age, it's, it's usually not the gospel itself that people have a problem with. It's just the behavior of Christians. A lot of times, if you ask now, especially in our multicultural, post-Christian, almost pagan Christian time, a lot of people probably have never interacted with a Christian. And the ones that do, there is a figure painted in their mind. And usually that's not the actual Christian that we see pointed out in Scripture. That's not the Christ that we see pointed out in Scripture. It's a it's a fake image. It's a straw man. It's something that doesn't actually make sense. This is why our witness is so important because it just goes beyond our words. I wonder, I wonder if that's something that hems us up a lot of times. Maybe there's an underlying fear of sharing the gospel because we know the way we live is not where it's supposed to be. It's just food for thought. I remember being younger, thinking through my own faith. And I remember sometimes, like, there would be, like, youth missions and things like that. And I remember one of the things that scared me was, I know I'm not 100% where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) I'm doing stuff I should not be doing. And that almost disturbed me in the way that it, it almost silenced my ability to witness. It's like two sides of the coin. It's people that are witnessing, but their lifestyles are horrible. 
And people know that their lifestyles are horrible, so they don't want to witness. But I think there's a humility that we're supposed to have because we know we're forgiven and we're pursuing Christ-like character. And there's a trust that someone is always watching. We know first and foremost it's God. That's, that means it's, it's that measurement of integrity. So when you're not at church, when you're not around the brethren, how do you behave? What kind of music do you listen to? What do you watch on TV? What do you edify yourself with? When you're at work, what are your conversations like? Do you get into cooler gossip? Is, is that the way we live our lives? When a family member is bad-mouthing another family member, do you get involved in that? These are important conversations because someone's always watching. What kind of conversation do you make at family gatherings? You don't th- just because they don't chime in, you don't think your nieces and nephews are just overhearing the conversation? Huh. Okay, that's a bit strange. I thought she said she was a Christian. So what happens, it actually destroys your witness by the time you say, hey, you know, you should come with me to church. It's like, no. Why would I go with you? I'm good where I'm at. If anything, I think I have a moral high ground on you. I'm a pagan, as you say, but I try to at least live with some level of integrity. You flip-flop on what you believe. Something to think about. If you go to verse 11, I think another cool point is here. It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying, in the Lyconian, <laughs> I keep mashing up that word, Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. So, Quick point here. It's interesting that they called Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul Hermes. Hermes, the Greek god, is actually known as the messenger of the gods. So we know Paul was probably doing majority of the talking. So amazing things were happening. Paul was doing majority of the talking. So they're like, okay, well, people are getting healed. This is crazy. We've never, humans aren't supposed to do this. These guys, no, these guys must be gods. And he must be Hermes because he's the messenger. He's the one that talks a lot. I think this little portion makes me think a bit. Is there a wonder about your impact in your family, in your job, in community? Something impactful happened in this city that people even though wrongly, but they acknowledge some sort of divine intervention. So it would make you think, am I having any kind of impact that people would think that same kind of way? Is my impact divine? This is why we lean so heavily into spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts is because spiritual gifts are a guaranteed place of power. 
when you use your spiritual gift, it's a guaranteed place of power. I've, I've seen some amazing things happen, especially around like prophecy and the gift of words of knowledge. That conversations on the street or on the job and God would just drop something into someone's heart and say, this is happening with your grandmother. Can I pray with you? And they're shocked because I don't know you and you have this information? How? It's funny because I, I remember something like that happening at a youth meeting. And someone's like, are you clairvoyant? Like, are you a medium? That's the only thing they can attach to because it's like, how, are you, how, how do you have access to this information? So the question is, your involvement in society, your involvement at your jobs, your involvement in family, does it awaken a divine wonder? Or is it basic, unimportant, nothing that inspires the eternal longing that we all have? And if it doesn't, I think you should ask yourself, or I, I, even better yet, pray to the Lord, how can I start doing that? Paul says to desire all gifts. Maybe some of us just need to pray <laughs> that God would like supernaturally intervene. Like, help me prophesy to some of these unbelieving members of my family. Like, help me do something miraculous that they can only, okay, we need to stop, stop, hold everything. We need to have a conversation here because this is not human. This is not a regular occurrence. Something divine's going on. Something to think about. So we know they wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. Go to verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard about it, they tore their robes and rushed out to the crowd. Now, using spiritual gifts, a sense of divine wonder happens. Now, here's the point of integrity. What do you do when that happens? I think there's so much experiences, unfortunately, of people that call themselves pastors or church leaders manipulating divine occurrences for their own gain. I think one of the famous ones, anyone heard of Peter Popoff? Right? It's manipulating a divine occurrence. This, how do you know this information? What happens next? Is the gospel preached? Is, is there a pointing back to God? I think what's even interesting is Paul and Bar- Barnab- Barnabas did two things. They tore their robes. So there's an emotional response. And they rushed out. So they didn't just say, oh, wow, let's just soak in, in the glory of it. They didn't do that. There was this extreme distress of like, no, that is not what's happening here. And they didn't walk. They didn't skip. They ran. They ran outside crying out, not just whispering, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you preaching the gospel to you to turn from these useless things to the living God. When these divine occurrences happen, 
we have to be careful that the finger is not pointed inward. God have mercy on us. That we pray for these spiritual gifts and when it happens, we, we almost align with the demonic to bring worship upon ourselves. Man, I, it's interesting. When you grow up in the church, you have so many stories about weird stuff. But another thing I've, I've witnessed is there's this person, I don't need to name the name, but that's something that he had was a prophetic gift. And what was interesting is that he used this prophetic gift when it came to his marriage. So he would always ask, like, Lord, I want to be able to serve my wife well. I want to know intimately what's happening. So he felt like he would get promptings of words of wisdom and words of knowledge with his wife. But at some point in time, those promptings that were meant to help encourage, beautify his marriage turned into manipulation. Folks, it's so easy. This is why character, this is why spiritual disciplines, we preached it first. Because that shapes, that chisels the character. Because when the power gets in your hands, when the fire gets in your hands, How are you going to handle it? Speaking in tongues, prophesying, all of those things are beautiful. But when God releases it, we have to have the character to maintain it. Because I think God is merciful enough to actually let us fall on our faces with that power. God is actually merciful to let us come to the very end of ourselves and destroy everything around us so at least we can come to the foot of the cross again and repent. Do you know how hateful it would be? I I shouldn't say hateful, but unmerciful if God didn't correct us in that situation. Oh, you need to do these spiritual disciplines to have the character to be able to manage the gift and you because you got the gift and things are happening you you don't pray as much the healing comes so you don't fast you don't need to read this scripture and then eventually character starts going downhill god is our father so he'll chasten us but woe to the person that god takes his hands off And lets you go to the grave with that mess. When it happens, because we're praying for so much here, the revival, the healings, the magnificent hand and power of God to come. We have to be careful that when it does come, we don't fall into the trap that so many churches do. It's easy. We pack this place out, multiple services, money starts coming in, healings, people like, oh, wow. Eventually, we start reading our own press clippings. Eventually, we take our foot off the gas. And what happens is God doesn't care more about church growth more than our salvation. He'll break this whole thing to make sure that we're good with him. 
I think sometimes we think like, oh, God's going to. No, no, no. If he's got to keep you sick to keep you at the foot of the cross, he'll do it. Scripture talks about it. We know his grace is sufficient. I know there was this preacher. He said, God knew he had to give me a teaching gift that I had to use every Sunday. Because if I wasn't teaching, I probably wouldn't read the Bible as much. It's like, I have to teach. It just drives him to his face. I need to be in the scriptures. I need to pray because of this weight of responsibility. Sometimes what you're praying and asking God to lift, you don't have the character to bear the healing that it comes, that comes after. That's why you have to lean into discipline. Yes, God heal. Yes, God save. But also I have to submit to God's will while I'm waiting. Because when that healing comes, when that revival comes, where's the character? Something to think about there. Just another thing here. Let's say verse 22. Well, I can start at verse 21, actually, and just read down. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made a good number of disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Scriptures like this blow up prosperity gospel preaching. I wonder if we we read the blessings of God, especially in the Old Testament, and we think that the difficult times that happen is some sort of curse. But here, if you actually read it in the Greek, must is actually it behooves us there's a duty for us to suffer these tribulations remember suffering for us we don't like it like lord knows like i remember back in the day when i would misbehave and i would i would say pops let me i would try to debate out of getting a spanking maybe that's why i like debating so much and it's like Without that discipline, without those groundings, without my PlayStation being taken away, with, without those moments of tribulation that to my father it's needed because there's a kind of character I want to build in you. But for me, it's just painful. It's just annoying. I want to play games. I can't do it. Wah. There's two different realities happening. This scripture is pointing to the mindset that us as believers should have, which is God's perspective. Oh no, suffering from God's hand is a beautiful thing. We get to follow in line with Christ that if there was anyone that did not deserve suffering, it was Christ. And us being made righteous, suffering, man, we get to follow step by step after Christ 
suffering for things we don't deserve. The disciples thought that was beautiful. They, they saw it as a duty. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane asked the Father, can you take this cup from me? He didn't want to go through with the suffering. But he still laid down his own will for the Father's will and embraced suffering. And I think as children of God, that's what we're supposed to do. That's our attitude. That we see suffering differently because, especially when it's undeserved, if God is sovereign and in full control of our lives and his character is good, anything that comes from his hand is good. If that's difficult, then I think the only things we have to consider is, do we actually consider God good? Do we trust the character revealed in Scripture? Do we, can, do we think that God somehow can trick us? We have to think through that because if God can't lie and he revealed his character as good and we're made righteous through believing the gospel, believing in Christ, following after Christ, when suffering comes, we trust that God is sovereign because he isn't because he said he is. So even sickness can be a good thing for the believer. All things work together for good of those who love God and call according to his purpose. Even heartbreak can be a good thing. Oftentimes we can't see it in the middle of it. Usually we, we know what that situation was when we get out of it. And we look back and go, oh, that's what God was trying to teach me. But I wonder if we can fight to have the spiritual maturity that we can have the same attitudes as the disciples did. That we don't have to wait till the storm is over to see what God's doing. But we can see what God's doing in the middle of it. A few verses earlier, we saw that Paul was stoned. We can say that he probably was stoned into a coma. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out to the city. He was probably battered, bleeding, probably had some lacerations. And when he got up, what did he do? He went back into the city. Folks, think through that. Some of us have not picked up the phone for years for someone that called us a bad name. But Paul was stoned and rejected, got up out of a coma, and went right back into the city. Does Paul have more Holy Spirit than us? If you know doctrine, we know the answer is no. The same power that resurrected Christ from the grave lives in us. It just, I just think Paul just was submitted and he was so trusting of God's sovereignty. Like there wasn't this dualism that we often have in our minds of like, well, I don't know, like, I don't want to get, ah. Uh. And it's usually for things that are way less stressful. 
But at the point of being beaten near death, there was still a trust that God called him to do this work. And even though he's rejected, to still keep going. I want to encourage you. We all have family members that don't know Christ. And maybe some blowout fights have happened with those family members. I wonder what it looks like for us to do what Paul did. The stones that they throw with words. It might have even knocked us out because we feel so uncomfortable. Do, do we get up and go back to that relationship? You see, I think maybe that might even be the divine moment for some of our family members. You still call me after I said X, Y, and Z to you? That's not human. There's no way you can be that merciful. Mercy is a spiritual gift. Some people are going to be like, there's just no way you could have forgiven what I did to you. Yeah, I have to forgive you. I love that I can forgive you. And it's not one of those surface forgives that it's like, man, I got to be around you because God said I had to. It's, no, it's a deep heart change that is like when Christ was stretched out on the cross, said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That kind of mercy that just pours out of us. The Spirit has given us the ability to have that. That's not unattainable. That's something that we actually should be pursuing. I think sometimes we just make it so complicated. We have an easier time 